Chapter 11 of Hellenic History. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Morgan Scorpion. Hellenic History by George Willis Boxford. Chapter 11. The War with Persia and Carthage. 492 to 479. The underlying cause of the war between Persia and Greece. The fundamental cause of the great war between Greece and the Asiatic Empire lay in the Persian policy of conquest. The chief interest in Oriental Empire building had always been predatory. The acquisition of slaves and other booty, attending the subjugation of a country, as well as the tributes thereafter permanently imposed. Each king desired, too, to excel his predecessor in the glory of triumphant war, and Darius was himself not only an organiser, but conqueror, intent upon pushing his imperial boundary westward as well as in other directions. The subjugation of Asia Minor had been followed by the invasion of Europe and the annexation of the Thracian coast. An attempt had been made on Naxos and the near-lying Aegean islands. Steadily, by land and sea, the empire was approaching the Greek peninsula. Undoubtedly, Darius placed a high value on the Hellenes as mariners, artisans and artists, and probably overestimated the wealth of the country. These circumstances alone would suffice to explain his invasions of Greece. In the Ionic revolt, moreover, was involved an additional motive. He could never hope to keep his Asiatic Greeks submissive so long as their European kinsmen were free to interfere with encouragement and aid to rebellion. It was not mere anger at the Athenians, then, for having joined in the burning of Sardis, as Herodotus represents, but a well-founded policy which prompted Darius to punish Athens and Eritrea for their meddling in his imperial affairs. The Expedition of Mardonius, 492 In the year immediately following the suppression of the Ionian Revolt, accordingly, Darius sent his son-in-law Mardonius at the head of a large army through Thrace against Greece. It was supported by a fleet, which described a parallel movement along the coast. The avowed purpose was the punishment of Athens and Eritrea, but a wider object is proved by the conquest of Thasos and Macedon. While encamped in the latter country, the invading army suffered great loss from an attack by the Thracians, and at nearly the same time the fleet was shattered in an attempt to round Mount Athos. Mardonius, accordingly, led his expedition home in disgrace, and was deposed from his command. The king demands submission, the condition of Hellas. This disaster left a stain upon the king's glory, which had by all means to be wiped off. He began forthwith to prepare a greater armament. At the same time he sent heralds among the Greek states to demand earth and water. Determined upon making himself master of all Hellas, he wished first to separate the willingly submissive from those against whom he should have to apply force. Hopeless of resistance, the islanders yielded, and many of the mainland acted likewise. Among the more independent states which thus medized were the Thessalian cities, Thebes, doubtless irritated by the aggressions of Athens, and Argos through enmity to Lacedaemon. With the exception of Aegina, the Peloponnesian League, directed by King Cleomenes, stood firmly loyal. It had been joined some years earlier by Athens, and from the archonship of Themistocles we discover a close understanding between his city and Lacedaemon as to the maintenance of a consistent attitude towards Persia. On the complaint of Athens, now at war with Aegina, Cleomenes attempted in vain to punish the leading Medizers of that island. We recognize in this proceeding an acknowledgment of Lacedaemon as the leading state of Hellas, bested with the right and duty of enforcing loyalty. Pessimism in Hellas, Desperate Measures of Athens and Sparta 
in most respects conditions inspired no hope in a successful resistance to the overwhelming persian power the loyal states formed but a small fraction of hellas and even in them were strong minorities who were willing to yield to escape what seemed inevitable destruction extraordinary measures were taken to nullify their influence the story was afterward told that at athens the king's heralds were thrown into the barathon at sparta into a well with the order to take thence earth and water to their lord by violating the sacred persons of ambassadors the authorities aimed to cut off every hope of reconciliation with darius and thus to commit their states irrevocably to a life-and-death struggle for freedom athenian preparation miltiades the athenians exerted themselves to the utmost to prepare for the impending invasion their most effective measure at this crisis was the election of miltiades to the board of generals his uncle of the same name had ruled the athenian colony of chersonese under the peisistratidae ultimately the government of the colony devolved upon the nephew miltiades who made himself tyrant and strengthened his dynasty by a marriage with the daughter of a neighbouring thracian chief during the scythian expedition he had been forced to serve under darius but had afterward joined the ionians in revolt thus incurring the implacable enmity of persia after the collapse of the revolt he fled for his life to athens scarcely arrived in his native land in the archonship of themistocles he was brought to trial on the capital charge of having usurped the tyranny in chersonese his prosecutor must have been one of the republican statesmen in sympathy with themistocles among the arguments which led to his acquittal were most probably his recent acquisition of lemnos for athens his known enmity to persia and the hope of his future usefulness as a man well acquainted with the military affairs of the enemy athenian commanders and army four hundred and ninety it speaks well for the sobriety of the athenians that they suppressed party feelings to acquit this anti-republican elect him to the generalship and provide him with congenial colleagues on the board and in the office of polemarch under his guidance the athenians abandoned the naval programme of themistocles to devote their whole attention to the heavy infantry the army of the reborn republic in the crisis attending the reforms of cleisthenes had gallantly overcome a coalition of powerful neighbours it was efficiently organised and equipped and though it lacked the professional training of spartans no force in the world of that time could compare with it in military spirit the persian invasion capture of eritrea in the summer of four hundred and ninety an asiatic fleet conveying a land force of infantry and cavalry moved westward across the aegean sea it was commanded by datis a mede and artaphanes a nephew of darius most of the islanders along their route submitted the immediate object was to subdue eritrea and athens and bring the inhabitants as slaves into the presence of the great king after a siege of six days eritrea was betrayed by two of her people the city was sacked and the population taken captive the landing at marathon the message to sparta from eritrea the persians under the guidance of the aged hippias crossed over to marathon on the coast northeast of athens hearing of this movement the athenians dispatched pheidippides a professional long-distance runner to sparta to ask aid reaching sparta the day after setting out he said to the magistrates lacedaemonians the athenians ask you to come to their aid and not allow so ancient a hellenic city to be enslaved by the barbarians for already eritrea has fallen into slavery and hellas has been weakened by the loss of no mean city the lacedaemonians says herodotus were eager to give aid but a religious law forbade their departure before the full moon the battle of marathon four hundred and ninety meanwhile the athenian army had marched to marathon and had encamped in a narrow valley facing the persians 
who were in the plain adjoining the shore there they were strengthened by a small force from Plataea, their ally the athenian commander was callimachus the polemarch whose council of war comprised the group of ten generals including miltiades it was decided to give the chief command to the latter because of his great experience and his knowledge of the persians the situation was such that should the persians take the road to athens the athenians could attack them in the flank after several days of waiting the invaders moved against their enemy's position they were furnished with bows and short swords and wore but slight defensive armour whereas the athenians were heavy armed and depended upon their long spears for attack understanding well the strength and weakness of the opposing force miltiades held his men back till the arrows of the enemy began to reach them whereupon he ordered them to charge at a run thus they avoided long exposure to the arrows and came most speedily to close quarters wholly unprepared for hand-to-hand -hand fighting the persians retreated with great loss to their ships after a vain attempt to surprise athens by an attack from phalerum the invading armament sailed back to asia a force of lacedaemonians arriving too late for the fray could only express their appreciation of the brave work of their allies effects of the victory there were perhaps ten thousand athenians engaged in this battle and in numbers the persians were certainly superior the moral effect of the victory was tremendous up to this time the very name of the medes was to the hellenes a terror to hear but it was now demonstrated that the greek warrior was superior to the persian the westward advance of the asiatic empire was halted and the greeks were inspired with a fair hope of maintaining their freedom to the athenians who almost single-handed had beaten a power thought to be irresistible this victory served as an incentive to heroism and enwrapped the marathonian warriors in an unfading glory the end of miltiades during the next few years the history of athens centres in the conflict of personalities and of parties for the moment the victory made her people forget all other leading statesmen in their admiration for the general who had won it taking advantage of their confidence miltiades persuaded them to entrust to him a fleet of seventy ships saying he would lead his countrymen to a place where they could enrich themselves but not letting them know definitely his purpose with this armament he sailed against the parians on whom he levied a fine of a hundred talents for having joined the enemy in attacking athens on their refusal to pay he besieged the island but failed to capture it and returned home wounded to disappoint the hopes of all thereupon he was tried for his life before the popular assembly on the charge of having deceived the athenians he was condemned but because of his former services the punishment was mitigated to a fine of fifty talents the condemned man died of his wound and the fine was paid by his son cimon miltiades had embarked on a policy of aggrandizing his state by the conquest of the medizing islanders had the undertaking succeeded the athenians would undoubtedly have approved the policy and the conqueror might have made himself tyrant his failure gave his enemies their opportunity to strike him down his prosecutor was xanthippus a republican statesman who had allied himself with the alcmeonidae by his marriage with agoristi niece of cleisthenes the struggle of republicans and tyrannists the republican leaders must have considered the overthrow of miltiades a great victory for the constitution gradually however the tyrannists who had not long remained in the background and who had contented themselves during the invasion with secret encouragement to the enemy began to make themselves again felt in politics and perhaps about the same time the athenians learned of preparations by the enemy for another attack in the spring of four hundred and eighty seven accordingly the republicans turned in great fury upon the tyrannists and ostracized their leader hipparchus a retired archon 
and kinsman of Hippias. This was the first application of ostracism, a great constitutional change. It is clear, too, that many prominent Republicans were now bent on making the Constitution more democratic. This wing of the party was represented by Aristides, who had been Archon the year after the Battle of Marathon. Shortly after the ostracism of Hipparchus, these progressives brought about the adoption of a law according to which the Archons, instead of being elected, should be taken by lot from nominees furnished by the Demis. The measure had a democratic appearance in that it gave all the qualified an equal chance for the office, whereas in fact it degraded the archonship by filling it with men of mediocre ability. Henceforth no eminent man ever held the office. The nine archons ceased forthwith to be the chief magistrates, and the polemarch lost his command of the army. The headship of the state passed to the ten generals. Statesmen who promoted this measure had held the archonship once, and were forbidden by law to repeat it, but the generalship they could hold as often as the people were willing to elect them to it, and perhaps this was the leading motive to the innovation. Conservatives and Democrats, End of the Tyrannists On this issue the Republicans split into two parties, those who favoured the change were thereafter to be known as Democrats. Their opponents were Conservatives. Naturally, the Alcmeonidae wished to preserve the Cleisthenian legislation unchanged, and therefore took the lead of the Conservatives. Megacles, nephew of Cleisthenes, was ostracised in the spring of 486, probably because of his opposition to the reform. His being classed with the friends of the tyrants points to a political deal with that party. But the tyrannists were thoroughly demoralized by the ostracism of another leader, not known by name, in the following year. The faction, accordingly, disappeared from history, its members joining the other two parties according to their several inclinations. Undoubtedly, the conservatism of Xanthippus led to his ostracism in 484. By means of the slender thread furnished us by Aristotle, we have followed darkly the course of a mighty political battle for the Constitution and for progress. When the light of history breaks upon the field, we see athwart the ruin of tyrannists and conservatives, the two great victors in the struggle. Aristides and Themistocles. The Naval and Financial Questions. Themistocles against Aristides. Again, Athenian politics turned on the question of war with Persia, for it was now known that preparations were far advanced for a new and greater expedition. Themistocles again urged the creation of a navy and advised that the surplus in the treasury from silver mines in Laurium be used for the purpose. Aristides, on the other hand, was content with the army, which had won so great a victory. Down to this time the Athenians seemingly never entertained the thought of devoting any extraordinary gain to the benefit of the state. Whenever Aristides or any of his countrymen ascended the Acropolis, he could see on the left, as he entered the gateway, a bronze chariot and four, which some years earlier his people had dedicated from the spoils of a victory gained over neighbours, and more recently from the booty of Marathon they had erected a neat little treasury of the Athenians at Delphi, though it would have been far better to employ these proceeds to a naval fund. The inhabitants of the island of Siphnos had long been accustomed to divide among themselves the revenues from their mines, and probably this was the general practice in early Greece. It would accord perfectly with the later policy of Aristides to assume that he was among those who favoured an equal division of the revenue from the Attic mines among the citizens. When the conflict between the two statesmen became bitter, Aristides was ostracised, and went to live in Aegina, then at war with Athens. The Naval Decree of Themistocles, 482 About the same time, the Naval Decree of Themistocles, 
providing for the building of a hundred triremes, was adopted by the assembly. Forty-seven more were added before the great naval conflict came. The motive of Themistocles was purely patriotic, to defend the freedom of Hellas and to make his own state a great power. The democratic effect could hardly have been foreseen. In fact, so far as one class more than another benefited by the measure, it was the merchants through whose cooperation Themistocles carried his decree. When we consider the obstacles he had to overcome in securing its adoption, as well as the far-reaching results, we can hardly doubt that it was the most splendid individual achievement of statesmanship up to that time known to the world. Xerxes prepares a gigantic invasion. The Battle of Marathon shook the military prestige of the great king and encouraged rebellion within the empire. The conquest of Greece became, accordingly, even more than ever, a question of practical necessity as well as of honour. Preparations for a new invasion, however, were suspended by the revolt of Egypt and the death of Darius, 486. After the reconquest of that country, Xerxes, son and successor of the deceased king, devoted himself to gathering the whole available strength of the empire with a view to overwhelming Greece by the force of numbers. Mardonius was pardoned for his earlier failure. As his route was to be followed, engineers and workmen were soon engaged in bridging the Hellespont with boats, and in cutting a canal through the isthmus of Mount Athos, for the ships were on this occasion to avoid the fatal promontory. As the army could subsist only in small part on the invaded country, great depots of provisions were established along the projected route. The care and pains expended on the provisioning and equipment of the expedition were extraordinary. In the autumn of 481, the nations of the empire were pouring their motley forces into Asia Minor, and ships were preparing in all the Mediterranean harbours subject to Persia. With his great host, Xerxes wintered at Sardis in expectation of setting out in earliest spring. Winter of 481 to 480. Lack of preparation throughout Hellas. Thus far, outside of Athens, the Greek had begun no preparation to resist the invader, and no further progress had been made towards unity. The heralds of Xerxes, as they passed to and fro throughout Hellas during the winter preceding the invasion, found many states ready to purchase safety by the gift of earth and water. The patriot cause could place no reliance on Thessaly, Thebes, or Argos, or on the less progressive states of the centre and west of the peninsula, or on the numerous widely scattered islands. Gelon, tyrant of Syracuse, might have given powerful aid, but had to face a Carthaginian attack. The brunt was to be borne by the Peloponnesian League, Athens, and a few small communities on the peninsula and the neighbouring islands, and even here the prevailing sentiment was nearly akin to despair. The Hellenic Congress at Corinth, Autumn of 481 Under these circumstances deputies from the loyal states met at Corinth to concert measures for defence. The call had been issued by Lacedaemon, but at the suggestion of Athens, undoubtedly on the motion of Themistocles. It was on his initiative, too, that this Congress, when assembled, resolved that all enmities among the states there represented should be reconciled. In pursuance of this resolution, Athens clasped hands with her inveterate enemy, Aegina. Another act provided for dispatching envoys to the unrepresented Hellenic states to invite their adhesion to the cause, and for sending spies to the camp of Xerxes. The embassies accomplished nothing worthy of mention, but the spies, captured by the Persians, were, under order of the king, shown everything in the camp, and dismissed in the expectation that their report of his immense army would induce the Greeks to yield without resistance. It was resolved further by the Hellenic Congress to wage war in common against Persia, and in the event of victory to destroy those Hellenic states which should willingly medize, divide their property as spoil, and dedicate a tenth to the Delphic Apollo. 
the congress conferred the chief command by sea as well as by land on sparta to whose leadership most of the states had long been accustomed there can be no doubt that the proceedings of this congress were directed by the mighty spirit of themistocles and that his determination to fight out the issue on the sea was accepted by all concerned xerxes crosses the hellespont his army and fleet in the spring of four hundred and eighty xerxes led his army across the hellespont and began his march through thrace his numbers continually increased by local reinforcements while the great fleet accompanied him along the coast the numbers given by herodotus amounting to more than five millions including non-combatants and on the sea twelve hundred and seven warships is an enormous exaggeration though modern scholars have not thus far agreed as to actualities a moderate estimate would be a hundred thousand fighting men in the land force and about six hundred ships of war the battle of thermopylae four hundred and eighty xerxes entered thessaly unopposed whereupon the states of this district under the lead of medizing oligarchs passed over to his side in accordance with the themistoclean plan of campaign the greek fleet took up its station at artemisium off northern euboea to meet the persian fleet while a force of about six thousand greeks under leonidas king of sparta occupied the pass of thermopylae to check the progress of the land army in that narrow road between the malian gulf and the steep mountain-side where numbers did not count the strong armour and long spears of the greeks might have held the persian host indefinitely at bay but after several days of unsuccessful assaulting in front a traitor led a detachment along an obscure byway over the mountain to the rear of the hellenic force the encounter at artemisium four hundred and eighty when the greek position thus became untenable leonidas prudently dismissed all his allies retaining only the three hundred spartans who were with him for a law of their country forbade the spartans to flee from an enemy their battle to death was the noblest even in the history of their city over the heroes graves the amphictyonic council inscribed this epitaph stranger report this word we pray to the spartans that lying here in this spot we remain faithfully keeping their laws to the rest of the greeks this heroic example was the most powerful of all commands to keep their freedom or die in the attempt meanwhile the hellenes at artemisium were encouraged by successful engagements with the enemy and by the damaging of the persian fleet in a storm when however they learned that xerxes had forced the pass at thermopylae they felt compelled to withdraw though they had fought no decisive battle the total result of these conflicts by sea and land was victory to the persians and a strengthening of the greek hope that under more favourable conditions the struggle might yet be successful the delphic oracle xerxes was now advancing through boeotia towards athens and the states of central greece were flocking to his standard as the hellenic fleet was retiring to salamis themistocles returned to his city to find it full of gloom earlier in the invasion when rumours of the irresistible oncoming of the enemy troubled their decision the athenians sent to inquire of the delphic apollo what hope they might cherish or what course pursue and the messengers were commanded by dire prophecies of ruin and slaughter ending in the command forth with you forth from the shrine and steep your soul in sorrow naturally the prudent men who controlled the oracle could see no result of the war save the utter conquest of greece but the messengers returned as suppliants to the temple declaring they would remain there to death unless a more favourable response were given then in the story of herodotus the god mercifully offered a ray of hope pallas has not been able to soften the lord of olympus though she has often prayed him and urged him with excellent counsel yet once more i address thee in words than adamant firmer 
when the foe shall have taken whatever the limit of Cecrops holds within it, and all that divine Citharon shelters, then far-seeing Zeus grants this to the prayers of Athena. Safe shall the wooden wall continue for thee and thy children. Wait not the tramp of the horse, nor the footman mightily moving over the land, but turn your back to the foe, and retire ye. Yet shall a day arrive when ye shall meet him in battle. Holy Salamis, thou shalt destroy the offspring of women, when men scatter the seed, or when they gather the harvest. The Athenians Abandon Their Country When this oracle was brought to Athens, some were of the opinion that the wooden wall had reference to the palisade around the Acropolis, and accordingly took refuge there. Themistocles, however, declared that it meant the fleet, and so persuaded the Athenians to abandon their homes and trust everything to their ships. The removal of the population and personal property was supervised by the council of the Areopagus, now filled with patriots and directed by Themistocles and his associates. No one has tried to tell of the pain and heart-burnings, of the sufferings of the sick and the aged, of the energy and the unselfish devotion of the strong attending this evacuation, all has tried to estimate the tremendous moral effect on the community. Some idea of the event we might form by imagining the removal of the population of an entire coast state, with our greater resources, in the face of invading Asiatics. Some of the fugitives remained in Salamis and Aegina, but the greater number were carried over to Trozen. The people of that city voted them an allowance of two ovals each for their daily support, an additional sum for the education of their children, and for the latter the privilege of picking fruit from any man's tree. The Hellenic Fleet in the Bay of Salamis The Hellenic fleet halted in the Bay of Salamis to cover the Athenian retreat, with the intention, too, of making there a further stand against the enemy. The place was well chosen, for the enemy would be compelled to fight in the strait, where superior numbers would not count. Further retreat would in fact be almost equivalent to abandoning the cause, for it would leave the enemy free to land troops on the coast of Peloponnese in the rear of the Isthmian line of defence then being prepared. Reinforcements more than made good the loss. The Hellenes had above three hundred triremes besides smaller vessels. The Athenian contingent was far the largest. Not only was the fleet at the command of Persia, made up of Phoenician, Egyptian, Ionian and lesser contingents, superior in numbers according to all ancient accounts, but the ships were better built and the crews more experienced. Ancient writers are agreed that the only real advantage on the Hellenic side was in spirit and resolution. Recently, however, it has been suggested with some degree of reason that in the actual battle the Greeks may have outnumbered their enemy. The Eve of the Battle Meanwhile Xerxes had reached Athens, having laid waste the country along his route. From Salamis the Greeks could see the city in flames, and their scouts espied the Persian fleet at anchor in the Bay of Phaleron. These circumstances tended for the moment to lessen the courage of the Greeks, and to suggest to the admirals the prudence of retiring to the isthmus where they could cooperate with the land forces. Themistocles, however, used all the resources of his reason and eloquence to persuade Eurybiades to remain. He even threatened in case of retreat to withdraw his ships and use them in conveying the Athenians to a new home in Italy. While thus pleading with the admirals, he took measures to bring on a Persian attack as soon as possible. Secretly dispatching a trusty slave to Xerxes, he falsely informed the king that the Greeks, panic-stricken, were about to sail away, and urging him to cut off their retreat. The advice was taken, and the Hellenic fleet was blocked up in the bay. About the same time the army of Xerxes, on its march towards Peloponnesus, had reached the bay of Salamis and encamped on the shore. The story is told that the news of these movements was brought to the Greek headquarters on Salamis by Aristides, who was just returning from Aegina. 
for early in the spring of that year the athenians had decreed an amnesty to their exiles the battle of salamis four hundred and eighty in their resolution to fight the greeks had high hopes of success for conditions were now more favourable than they had been at artemisium the story of the battle is clearly and vividly narrated by the poet aeschylus who served among the athenians the speaker is a messenger to the king's mother and her counsellors at susa and night passed by yet did the hellene host essay in no wise any secret flight but when the day by white steeds chariot borne radiant to see flooded all earth with light first from the hellenes did a clamorous shout ring for a triumphant chant and wild and high pealed from the island rock the answering cheer of echo thrilled through all our folk's dismay of baffled expectation for the greeks not as for flight that holy paean sang but straining battleward with heroic hearts the trumpet's blare set all their lines aflame straightway with chiming dip of dashing oars they smote the loud brine to the timing cry and suddenly flushed they all full into view foremost their right wing seemly ordered led in fair array next all their armament battleward swept on therewithal was heard a great shout on ye sons of hellas on win for the homeland freedom freedom win for sons wives temples of ancestral gods and old sires graves this day are all at stake yea and from us low thunder of persian cheers answered no time it was for dallying then straightway galley dashed her beak of bronze on galley twas a hellene ship began the onset and sure all the figurehead from a phoenician captain charged on captain at first the persian navy's torrent flood withstood them but when our vast fleet was cramped in straight space friend could lend no aid to friend then ours by fangs of allies beaks of bronze were struck and shattered all their oar array while with shrewd strategy the hellene ships swept round and rammed us and upturned were hulls of ships no more could one discern the sea clogged all with wrecks and limbs of slaughtered men the shores the rock reefs were with corpses strewn then rode each bark in fleeing disarray yea every keel of our barbarian host they with oar fragments and with shards of wrecks smote hacked as men smite tunnies or a draught of fishes and a moaning all confused with shrieking hovered wide o'er that sea brine till night's dark presence blotted out the horror that swarm of woes yea though for ten days space i should rehearse could i not tell in full yet know this well that never in one day died such a host such a tale untold of men xerxes withdraws from greece too thoroughly crippled to renew the fight the persian fleet retired to asia thereupon themistocles urged the greeks to sail forthwith to the hellespont and by destroying the bridge cut xerxes off from his base of supplies the advice was sound and if taken would probably at once have ended the war but to the other greeks the idea seemed too venturesome and the war continued another year xerxes himself returned to asia leaving mardonius with the best part of the army the plan of campaign for four hundred and seventy nine for the campaign of four hundred and seventy nine the greeks so far adopted the plan of themistocles as to send a fleet of a hundred and ten ships across the aegean with a view to striking persia in her own territory the armament was under the chief command of king leo tychidus of sparta whereas the athenian force was led by xanthippus who had returned from exile under the amnesty and had been elected general among the athenians however a revulsion of feeling had come in favour of themistocles former adversary aristides now also a general obedient to their insistent demands the policy of defence at the isthmus was abandoned and a hellenic army gathered at plataea for a trial of strength with mardonius in the open field the commander was pausanias regent for the young son of leonidas and the general of the athenian division was aristides the greeks had altogether perhaps twenty-five to thirty thousand heavy infantry in addition to light troops and the force of the enemy 
could not have been greatly superior. The Battle of Plataea, 479. The numerous manoeuvres and counter-manoeuvres, the changes of position, the omens and prophecies involved in the complex battle, cannot be detailed here. From the confused traditions certain facts stand out boldly. Could the Greeks choose their own ground, they were certain of victory. The only hope of the Persians lay in taking them off their guard or in an unfavourable position. Hence resulted the long postponements of the conflict and the shiftings of position. While affairs were in this condition, the report of the arrival of the Greek fleet at Samos forced Mardonius to battle, that he might return as soon as possible for the protection of Ionia. In the retirement of the Hellenic army to a more tenable position, some distance in the rear, Mardonius saw his opportunity to assail it while in a state of disorder. The main attack was directed against the Peloponnesians. The latter faced about, and as the omens were unfavourable, stood patiently under the shower of arrows from the enemy's horsemen. But when the main body of Persians had drawn up within bowshot behind their fence of wicker shields, at this critical moment the omens changed, the order to charge was given, and the heavy infantry of Peloponnese dashed out a run upon the enemy's line. The Persians resisted bravely. But when Mardonius and the men stationed around him in the strongest part of their line had fallen, the rest turned and gave way before the Lacedaemonians, for their manner of equipment, without defensive armour, was an especial cause of their losses. In fact, they were contending light-armed against Hoplites. It is clear that in the complex movements at Plataea, the leading fact is the repetition of the chief tactical feature of Marathon the double-quick charge of the hellenic phalanx upon the line of light persian infantry the result was decisive the remnant of the persian army hurriedly retreated and the greek peninsula was free from the great king the battle of mycali four hundred and seventy nine the achievement of the hellenic naval force may be told in fewer words meeting no opposing fleet the Greeks landed on the Ionian coast and assailed the Persians entrenched at Mycale. Asiatic Greeks deserted to their kinsmen, the Persian force was destroyed, and their warships, drawn upon the shore and surrounded by a palisade, were burned. Whereas other battles of the war had been defensive, this victory, pointing the way to the liberation of Asiatic Greece, began a policy of aggression against the Persian Empire. Western Hellas, Economic and Intellectual Condition In an earlier chapter we touched upon the Hellenic colonization of Italy and Sicily and the growth of the new settlements in that region to a high degree of economic prosperity. This success was due to the superior vitality, quick intelligence and bold enterprise of the settlers, as well as to the fertility of their lands and the great extent of country open to their exploitation. Far, however, from devoting themselves solely to the accumulation of wealth, the colonists for a long time advanced beyond the mother country in cultural development. In the intellectual awakening of Hellas, they had their full share, particularly in the fields of architecture and philosophy, and as the Asiatic Greeks declined under foreign rule, the cultural leadership of Hellas temporarily passed to the Western Greeks. Aristocracy and Tyranny the earliest settlers, dividing the lands among themselves, tended to form themselves into a closed aristocracy. The natives who tilled their fields were serfs, and the fishermen and traders, who collected in every coastal town, constituted the commons, who were citizens with inferior privileges. Class conflicts inevitably led to tyrannies. The result that was before the close of the 6th century nearly every Greek city in Sicily had fallen under despotic rule. Those of Italy were governed either by tyrants or Pythagorean brotherhoods. In the west, as in the east, each community went its own way with little heed to the general Hellenic interest. Enemies of Western Hellas, the Etruscans This particularism, while acting as a powerful cultural stimulus, wrought little harm so long as the Hellenes had to deal merely with foreign states as small as their own. 
in time however in the west as well as in the east they had to confront great military powers politically the most important people thus far in italy were the etruscans in origin decadent minoans they had received from their mingling with the native italians a new vitality and an aggressiveness in war which made them formidable to their neighbours in the beginning of the fifth century they held not only etruria and parts of the po basin further north but also most of campania and the coast region to the south nearly to posidonia in the opinion of cato the censor they governed the greater part of italy the phoenicians and the carthaginian empire while the etruscans were developing this power within the peninsula the phoenicians were threatening to take possession of the islands and remaining coasts of the middle and western mediterranean for a time they had to yield ground to the greeks in both sicily and spain in africa west of Cyrenaica, however the phoenicians were comparatively free to work out their own destiny on and near the african coast opposite sicily there grew up a group of colonies the most important of which was carthage toward the end of the seventh century this city won the leadership over her near neighbours and began to develop a naval power the foundation of her future empire her ambition was to gather under her leadership and protection all the phoenician colonies of the mediterranean and to win as much new territory as possible for the race in sicily they gained ground in sardinia they won a footing about six hundred though they never succeeded there in occupying more than the coasts the phoenician settlements in spain acknowledged the leadership of carthage while the african coast became hers from Cyrenaica to lyxus on the atlantic before five hundred carthaginians and etruscans combine the phocaeans driven from corsica five hundred and forty naturally carthage had entered into close commercial relationship with the etruscans a people of similar character about five hundred and fifty she had begun to form treaties with the individual coast towns of etruria for the regulation of trade and for the defence of their common interests against the greeks the first hellenes to suffer from this alliance were the phocaean colonists in corsica in a naval battle between them and the combined feats of the allies they were overwhelmingly beaten five hundred and forty and were forced in consequence to abandon corsica this was the first important loss of territory suffered by the hellenes in the west the new war policy of carthage at carthage toward the end of the same century the office of general newly instituted fell to a certain mago who used his position for a thorough reorganization of the army it was henceforth to consist largely of mercenaries recruited from the fresh warlike native races of the western mediterranean countries thereafter few citizens of carthage served excepting as officers their immense financial resources could thus be converted into sinews of war and a policy of conquest could be inaugurated without disturbance to the money-making pursuits of the great commercial city carthaginian invasion of sicily the first use made of the system was to be for the conquest of sicily while therefore xerxes was preparing his stupendous expedition against eastern hellas the carthaginians doubtless in concert with him were recruiting a great mercenary force for the invasion of sicily in four hundred and eighty hamilcar mago's son led forth the armament the numbers given by the ancients are two hundred ships of war three thousand transports and three hundred thousand men herein we may discover an attempt of the sicilian historians to make their glory equal that of the victors at salamis and plataea two hundred triremes there may have been but the other numbers are exaggerated beyond our power to correct the tyrants gelon of syracuse it was fortunate that the western greeks had made progress toward political unification anaxilus tyrant of regium four hundred and ninety four to four hundred and seventy six had seized zankel across the strait and recolonizing it with a mixed multitude had named it messini after his native land meanwhile in southern sicily a succession of powerful tyrants of gela 
had extended their city's sway over several neighbouring states. The last and greatest of these despots was Gelon, a young cavalry officer of remarkable genius in war and statecraft. Opportunely, the serfs of Syracuse had risen against the lords and had violently expelled them. Gladly espousing the cause of the exiles, Gelon made himself master of Syracuse, but instead of restoring the city to the landlords, he faithlessly held it for himself, and took up his residence there. With still less moral scruple, he enlarged his new capital by transplanting to it the wealthier citizens of neighbouring towns he conquered, while the poorer class he sold into slavery, merely remarking, Common men are an undesirable element in a state. Thus it came about that by energy and cunning, Gelan had united all southeast and Sicily under his rule. The Battle of Himera, 480 to strengthen himself further, he had married Damareta, daughter of Theron, despot of the flourishing city of Acragus. Scarcely less ambitious than his son-in-law, Theron had annexed Himera to his domain, after expelling its tyrant, Terilus. The combination of the powerful tyrants of Syracuse and Acragus threatened Phoenician interests in Sicily, and led to the Carthaginian invasion, wherein the exiled Terilus played the part of a Hippias and Anaxilus, kinsman of the former, promised his cooperation. The invaders laid siege to Himera, and the great battle was fought beneath its walls, Gelon and Theron against the Carthaginians, Hellas against Canaan. Survivors of the invading army afterwards reported that all day long, as the battle raged, Hamilcar, in Semitic style, stood apart from his host, bent on winning aid of the gods by offering them the entire bodies of sacrificed victims on a great pyre. And when he saw there was a rout of his own army, he being then, as it chanced, in the act of pouring a libation over the sacrifices, threw himself into the fire, and thus he was burned up and removed from sight. The details are uncertain, the results well known. A great part of the fleet went up in flames the army was utterly overthrown, vast spoils and countless prisoners, made slaves, enriched the victors. To save her dependencies in Sicily, Carthage bought peace with a heavy war indemnity. The victors were proudly conscious of having done their part in freeing Hellas from the barbarian peril, and in just appreciation Pindar associated Himera on equal terms with Salamis and Plataea. End of chapter 11